Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18, we looked at the whole chapter last week. We saw it in its position as the hinge of Exodus, where it recapitulates in miniature form. The first half of Exodus, deliverance, and then the second half of Exodus, dwelling. God delivers his people from Egypt, that's chapters 1 through 17. Then he delivers Jethro from idolatry, that's the beginning of chapter 18. And then Jethro prepares the people for God to dwell with them in the second half of chapter 18. And chapters 19 through 40 recount how God came to dwell with his people. So we'll look at Jethro's deliverance from idolatry tonight. Exodus 18, verse 1, and notice how the narrator calls Jethro father-in-law 13 times. Clearly this is important to the narrator. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their peace, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they acted presumptuously, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honor that this father-in-law showed his son-in-law and vice versa. We thank you for his receptive ear that he heard what you did in delivering your people and that he came to faith and that he came and worshipped you, the God of Israel. Lord, we ask that you would help us to imitate Jethro in his faith, to believe, to trust you, to worship you, to confess your greatness. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be very careful who we marry, and that you would give us the grace to pray for our in-laws and to seek to love and honor them. We thank you for your care for your people. Thank you that you are the God who delivers. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I pointed out last time, we have a diptych. We have the Amalekites coming and fighting 
at the end of chapter 17. The Amalekites are hostile. They attack the people of God. And then we have in chapter 18, Jethro, a Gentile who is not hostile, a Gentile who comes and worships with the people of God. Oh, we have contrasting responses. The Amalekites versus the way Jethro does it. But we also have to reckon in this passage with the fact that the narrator is obsessed with Moses having a father-in-law. The word father-in-law appears 52 times in the Old Testament. So, and it appears 13 of those times in this chapter. That is one quarter of all the mentions of father-in-laws in the entire Bible. Happens right here in this chapter. And you can see it, especially like in verse 12 where it calls him Moses' father-in-law twice in the same verse. Just to make it clear that this guy is not only Moses' father-in-law in verse 1, he's still Moses' father-in-law by the time we get to verse 12. So we have to not only reckon with the obvious, that God is saving a Gentile, but also with the, the huh? What? How does a father-in-law come into it? The Bible hasn't mentioned fathers-in-law you know, up to this point. Abraham and Sarah might as well be orphans. You certainly don't hear anything about how they get along with their parents. It mentions Abraham's father for two or three verses, and then he's gone. Sarah's father is never even mentioned. I guess they had the same father, probably. But, yeah, they did. Anyway, the father-in-law thing suddenly comes to great importance here and then vanishes again. Because Moses is saying, not only does God save Gentiles, that's a surprise. But here's a bigger surprise. God saves in-laws, too. It almost sounds like a joke, but because the Bible elsewhere is so negative about in-laws, this is a counterbalance to that. This is a corrective, or fills out the picture and says, not only are in-laws a threat to the gospel, a threat to your family's faith, God can also save them. Don't plan on it, but recognize that he can do that when he so chooses. So we see that God is God of the Gentiles as this Gentile comes in worship. Jethro comes and he does, worships God. The other Gentiles attack God's kingdom, the Amalekites, most recently Egypt. Of course, in the previous several chapters, we're reminded of that in chapter 18 with the name of Eliezer. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's not just Amalekites who hate us, it's also Egyptians. Pharaoh tried to kill me. Moses named his son after that incident. But now, we come to see the way the world is supposed to be. Gentiles streaming in to the camp of Israel to obey God and to worship him. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. The news filtered across the desert, and it came to Midian. And if you look at the map, you'll see that Midian is in today's Jordan. As we talked about last time, you have to go from Egypt all the way across Sinai, across the Persian Gulf, then you're in Jordan, and there in Jordan is the country of the Midianites. So Jethro hears this, 
and he he takes his daughter, who had come back to him at some point, and comes to meet Moses. But it doesn't say that he came because he thought the family should be back together. It doesn't say that he came because he was tired of having the grandkids in his house, and he needed some peace and quiet. It says that he came because he heard what God had done. He was attracted by the news of God's salvation. That is what triggered him setting out across the desert with his daughter and grandsons to go meet his son-in-law. This is the attractive force of the good news of God. Later on in 1 Kings, we'll see that the queen of Sheba came when she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the Lord. And so it is here. When Jethro met Moses, Moses was a homeless tramp wandering through the desert. Moses, yeah, he married the boss's daughter, but he was the hired guy. He was not somebody special. He was lower on the totem pole than Jethro. Throughout the 40 years that he lived there and worked for Jethro and kept his father's sheep, or his father-in-law's sheep. And now, suddenly, Moses, instead of being a hired shepherd guy, is one of the most important people in the world, who has just gone toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and won. I don't know if any of you has had that experience, of getting to marry your daughter to a probably subpar, below-average guy, and then getting over time to watch him grow into one of the most important people in the world. But that's what happened to Jethro. That's, that calls for some humility on Jethro's part to accept, this is not my hired man anymore. This is the unquestioned dictator of two million people who has brought them out of Egypt and is leading them through the wilderness with the rod of God and the ability to split the Red Sea and the ability to speak to God face to face. This is not a small time sheep herder on the backside of the desert anymore. But not only did he have to swallow the fact that his son-in-law is now an important guy, Jethro also has to swallow the reality that his job as a Midianite priest is on the line. He's spent his life serving pagan gods. Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, maybe he's a priest of Midian. Maybe he is truly the priest, as in the most important priest, the top guy in their religious hierarchy. We're not sure. The Hebrew the could mean either one. But certainly, whether he's at the top of the pile or just somewhere in the pile, he recognizes this reality that the God who delivered from Egypt is greater than the gods of Midian. And he faces it. He doesn't stay in Midian and say, see no evil, hear no evil. I'm going to pretend that I can keep serving the gods of Midian even though I know they're not gods. That they're not on the same level as my son-in-law's God. Jethro freely puts his career on the line and admits, yeah, I've spent my life serving this non-entity, the God of the Midianites. 
And I want, I'm going to humble myself and go to my son-in-law and find out about his God and I'm going to get rid of my gods and come over to his God. So Jethro hears about what God does and he brings his daughter back. Moses had sent her back. You can spend a lot of time trying to figure out when Moses did that. The fact is that we have no idea. Uh, She went with him to Egypt, it says several chapters before. Then at some point, apparently, Moses said, this is a little dangerous, why don't you go home, honey? Which she did, and now her dad brings her back. So Jethro arrives at the camp at the mountain of God. He had sent word on ahead. He honors Moses by sending this announcement. I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and, your, and her two sons with her. Right. Parents, call before you show up at your kid's house. It may be your kids, but Jethro sends this notice. I'm coming. He doesn't just show up. That is, he honors his son-in-law. He recognizes that Moses needs some notice, and he duly gives that. And Moses, in turn, honors his father-in-law. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down. And we may think that people in the Near East take things a bit far. Most of us don't bow before our relatives or our in-laws. But Moses bows to show his respect and honor, and then he kisses his father-in-law. As one commentator said, if I see my wife and my father-in-law after we've been apart for a significant amount of time, I know which one I'm going to kiss first. The text doesn't tell us anything about the reunion between Moses and Zipporah. It focuses exclusively on how Moses gets on with his father-in-law, and we see that Moses honors his father-in-law. He doesn't say, well, I'm not your hired guy anymore. I'm done with all that yes sir, no sir stuff. Now I'm the boss man, and you're going to kowtow to me, Jethro. Moses, too, honors his father-in-law. And then they they asked each other about their peace, so they greeted each other in that formal Eastern way, shalom or salam, as the Arabs still say. They wished each other peace, and then they went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law what had happened, what the Lord had done, the hardship on the way, how the Lord delivered them. Now, Moses had lived with this guy or near this guy for 40 years. He knows that he's a priest of Midian. But he doesn't try to censor God's activities. He doesn't say, well, with the unbelieving in-laws again. Better pretend that You know, let's just sweep God to the side. Now, obviously, Moses had some pretty crazy adventures to tell. But he tells them, again, and the focus, as we saw this morning with the missionary report, is on what God has done. Not on, well, Jethro, I'm an important personage now. You better be impressed with me now. Thought I was just a shepherd boy, huh? No, it's, here's what... God did. So Moses tells him the good news of God's deliverance from Egypt. And Jethro believes. The sequence here is 
just very clear. Well, the first thing Jethro does is to rejoice in God's works. It made him happy what the Lord had done for Israel. The rabbis have revocalized this. Every Hebrew word is written as just the consonants, and you can fill in the vowels later. And if you fill in a different set of vowels with rejoice, you can turn it into cuts. Then Jethro felt like he was being sliced. Now, why did they get that interpretation? Well, they say, poor Jethro, he's a pagan priest, and he hears about what happened to his fellow Egyptian pagans, and it just tore him to shreds. He just hated it. Now, I'm sorry, but that's a silly interpretation. The main way of vocalizing the text says Jethro rejoiced, and clearly that's what he says in the next verse as he blesses God. Jethro doesn't say, oh, my people, the Egyptians. Oh, you did what to the Egyptians, Moses? No, Jethro says, yes, God delivers. God saves. There typically is this point in conversion where somebody, at least for an adult, somebody says, okay, well, I recognize the story of the Bible and I wish it were true. I would love to believe that. Right, and that happens to all of us in some ways, whatever it is. First we decide that we want to believe it, then we believe it. Not always, but in many cases. Well, Jethro decides this is good news. This is news that brings me joy. I am delighted to hear how God delivered my son-in-law's people. Right For his whole life, for at least 80, well, at least 40 some years now, Jethro has only known of Egypt as a place of bondage for his son-in-law's people. Now he hears, Egypt is no longer that place. They have come out, and he sees them there in the desert, camped at the mountain of God. So he takes joy in that, and he blesses God. He speaks out, his praise to the Lord. And he repeats himself. He's so excited. Delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He was just still in awe over that. Such that he says it and then he says it again. He's amazed and he's so amazed he's just repeating himself. Blessed be Yahweh. Now again, this is, we read that and we gloss right over it. We say, well, yeah, that's easy to praise God. That's because we're already Christians. We're used to praising God. We've practiced it in many cases day by day for many years. Jethro is not used to praising God. He's used to worshiping according to the Midianite way and performing the sacrifices and duties for the Midianite gods. But when he hears what the true God did, what Yahweh did, He praises Yahweh. And he confesses God's greatness. Now I know. So here it is. He specifically compares Yahweh to the ancestral gods of his own people. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Moses is hearing that and trying to pry his jaw up off the floor. Jethro? 
Are you the priest of Midian that I knew, that I lived with for so long? You're openly admitting to me that your Midianite gods are not as great as my God? Jethro has come to the true God. And then he specifically confesses the greatness of Yahweh. That Yahweh is superior to any and every pagan god. The Egyptian god, the Midianite gods, and more. This is part of what we do in worship when we confess our faith. We're training ourselves to say so that we can believe, so that we can act on the reality that our God is greater than any other God. The gods of safety, or the gods of pleasure, the gods of power, the gods of fame, the gods of food and drink, clothing, fashion, music, whatever it is that we're tempted to live for, Jethro had lived for the Midianite gods, and now he says, those gods are not it. Yahweh is it. And he seems to recognize the very thing in which they behaved proudly. He was above them. Something like exactly where the Egyptian gods claim to be strongest, that's where God, that's where Yahweh destroyed them. Then, to top it off, he provides a burnt offering out of his own pocket. He took a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. A burnt offering is not a cheap form of worship. It is at least a lamb, but quite possibly a bull. Those of you in the livestock market know that those animals don't come cheap. Jethro pays for one out of his own pocket and he leads it up to the altar. And there either he sacrifices it himself or he has an Israelite sacrifice it. In one sense it doesn't matter because he's the one who paid for it. He commissioned this offering. He came and engaged in this expensive act of worship to Yahweh. Now there's an interesting thing in the text here. Every other place in the whole Bible that speaks of offering a burnt offering and sacrifices uses God's personal name. Offer an offering to Yahweh. This is the only verse in the whole Bible that says offer a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, to Elohim. It seems to be using God's generic title, that just the name of what he is, God, instead of his personal name, Yahweh, to say Gentiles can offer worship to. Even those who are outside the covenant, who would not have known him as Yahweh, who just know him as God, they can come and worship as well. And that's what Jethro does. He comes and he offers a burnt offering. He sits down and eats with Aaron and the elders of Israel. Now, oddly, the verse doesn't say whether Moses was there, even though he's mentioned twice as the son-in-law of Jethro. But presumably Moses was there. It's just not done when you're visiting your son-in-law. You don't go with his brother to some religious celebration and leave out the person you're there to visit. So Moses is most likely there But anyway, Jethro is worshiping God and he's communing with Aaron and the elders of Israel. And he's eating before God. So the whole sacrificial 
experience. Not just killing the bull, burning up part of it, but also eating the other part with the people of God. He's engaging not just in worship, but also in fellowship. He has come and announced his loyalty to Yahweh. In verse 1, he's priest of Midian. In verse 12, he's sitting with Aaron and Moses and the elders of Israel as a worshiper of the true God. What's the message? Simply that the God who delivered his people from Egypt is in the business of saving. And he can save even a father-in-law. You see, in the broader Old Testament context, marriage is intimately related to faith. The Hebrews were a little more sparing of words than we are. As you can see, I have in the notes there, the word translated father-in-law throughout this chapter is also used for son-in-law and for groom. And also as a verb to become a son-in-law or to become a father-in-law. So it basically means a male relative by marriage or the act of becoming such. It's a pretty all-purpose word. And a very typical usage would be the one in Deuteronomy 7. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. This is God's basic statement on in-laws. Don't get pagan in-laws. Don't marry into an ungodly family. If you find an ungodly woman with ungodly parents, don't marry her. Parents, don't let your children date unbelievers. If you're single, if you're looking for a spouse and you meet somebody and they're not a believer, forget it. That's the mainstream biblical message. Because here's why, Deuteronomy 7.4, They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So if you want God's wrath on your family, if you want to make God your family's enemy, if you want God to turn on you, marry an unbeliever. Hence, don't do missionary dating. Don't say, oh, this person is such a good person. They just need Jesus. If I'm dating her, she's more likely to become a Christian than if I'm dumping her. The biblical witness throughout is don't expect your in-laws, if you marry a pagan girl from a pagan family, don't expect that that family is going to change. There are two other concentrated places in the Bible where in-laws are mentioned. The first, Genesis 19, Lot and Sodom. And the second, Judges 19, the Levite in Bethlehem and his trip to uh, Gibeah. In both cases, we have the rape, we have murder, We have a godless pagan environment. Sodom, of course, is destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. Gibeah is destroyed by the children of Israel hearing about what happened and saying, this is horrible. They come down to the city and butcher everyone in it. Take ropes and pull down the walls and destroy the city. That 
is the other two places where the word father-in-law is prominent in the story. Father-in-law as ungodly, pagan, horrible influence. Or living in an ungodly, pagan, horrible town and letting his daughter or daughter-in-law experience horrible treatment. That's the biblical emphasis. Primarily negative. Don't go after an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbelieving man or an unbelieving woman. So the dirty little secret is what? Moses did exactly that. Moses, the founder of Israel's faith, wandered off into the desert and found a Midianite priest and married the guy's daughter. And Moses, of course, at that time was little better than a pagan himself. He's a fugitive from Egyptian justice. He's out running through the desert. And he meets a pagan family and marries into it. God spared him. Jethro becomes a believer. But Moses is telling us, yes, he's my father-in-law. Yes, he was a pagan priest, and he came to faith. But throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, he's telling us, don't count on it. Don't plan on it. Don't marry into a pagan family like I did with the expectation that my presence will turn them around. Probably not going to happen. But of course, God can save even in-laws. Don't give up on conversion. If you have unbelieving in-laws, pray for them. Know that the God of the Exodus and the God who brought Jethro, the pagan priest, to faith is a God who's still in the business of saving. Right? Imagine that your daughter married a guy who runs a Buddhist shrine in Japan. And what's more, he's the 10th generation of sons in this family who have run this Buddhist shrine. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't say, I don't know. This is probably too much for God. God saved Jethro, the priest of Midian. God saves Israel from Egypt. God saves in-laws. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how well-rounded and perfect the witness of your word is. We pray that you would give your people the grace and wisdom not to marry unbelievers. Help us also, Father, if we have unbelieving relatives by marriage, to pray for them and to seek their salvation. We pray that you would act to draw them in as you acted to draw Jethro in. Father, we ask your blessing on this sinful, wicked world. Don't let us descend into the chaos of Gibeah or of Sodom. Help us instead to look more like Israel, camped at the mountain of God, ready to hear the word of God, a place where Gentiles come and are treated well and honored, and they come to repentance and faith. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Strengthen us in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.